Welcome to Cackling Hens. It's your host, it's GGO. Firstly, I want to apologize for the lack of episode recordings, as I was currently on a hiatus due to the virus. The coronavirus <laughs> had me feeling not so motivated. But now that the world is opening back up, I'm, I'm getting that motivation back, okay? <laughs> but I'm extremely honored today to be recording episode 5 with my guest, Hadi Ali, human rights advocate. We here at Cackling Hen support the Black Lives Matter movement. And the United States is currently reeling over the murder of George Floyd. And beyond that, race issues, the oppression, the violence towards black people, this is nothing new. And it's not okay. So, Hadia, I'm going to start off with this question. What does justice look like for the black community? Well, I think... Firstly, justice requires communities to be involved in the planning. Uh Um, And so a lot of communities around the country are making demands of their city councils, of their mayors and their governors, and even at the federal level. And I think the most important and the most healing thing that those leaders can do is to listen to community demands. Um, I, for one, in in full support of abolishing the police, um, as well as the prison industrial complex, because those are ju- those are measures of justice that focus on um, punishment and violence, and not on healing communities or in serving victims. Um, and so today there was actually a rally in Hartford at the ta- at the city hall, demanding that the town council members defund the police department and redirect that money towards social programs, towards education, and things that are serving communities better. And so I think the best thing that we can do to honor victims of police brutality um, and to uplift the community that they leave behind is to figure out how to best serve those communities. And right now that looks like defunding the police, that looks like um, adopting community demands for how those funds should now be redirected and really just listening to the people that are most affected by this violence how do you go about defunding the police so each police department um they have a budget that is a, that is developed and adopted in partnership with the with their respective towns or respective city that they serve um and so defunding the police looks like Right now, we're at the at the perfect time for it because the fiscal year is restarting. And so a lot of towns and cities are approving a new budget and are looking at how much money the police are getting. A lot of places, are there, these are multi-million dollar budgets. Um, and so defunding looks like not only divesting from police departments and taking, let's say, 25% off of their budget, but then reinvesting and refunding that money into communities. And so um, I can actually try to pull up these demands that the Harvard, um, Harvard community came up with, which are really powerful. And so it says, we demand divestment from the Harvard Police Department. $45 million will be reallocated to education and community wellness. Um, like these departments not having militarized equipment, there's no reason for police officers to be walking around with AK-47s and for all of them to have riot gear, while our own hospitals who are trying to serve communities throughout a pandemic can't get basic PPE like masks and gowns. But we have police officers who have multi-million dollar budgets within their departments to get 
equipment that is essentially used to enact violence upon their communities. And so it looks like them no longer being militarized. It looks like um, them no longer being able to launch programs of surveillance into communities or over police communities and things like things of that nature. And then that money going back into social services. See, me for one, I don't really understand or see eye to eye with policemen being militarized. I really don't understand why they need that type of equipment. And I think that's that's the most, um, it's just crazy to me because I've seen so many protests where the protest, it's, like, it's a new chant that I haven't seen before. I don't know if it's been around for a while, but I saw protesters saying, there's no riot. I, I don't see no riot here. Why are you in riot here? And I don't think that, well, I think that police officers do understand, but I don't think that a lot of other people understand that when police officers show up in riot gear, it's because they're there to start a riot and they're there to escalate the situation. Um, and so if you have war, I obviously I'm anti-war as well, but if you have materials that people use for war abroad in the communities that you serve, who are you at war with? Are you at war with community members? Are you at war with black and brown people? Um, I think we really need to ask ourselves some of those questions when we look at why police officers have that equipment. So some people think that defunding the police means there'll be no more like police officers. And that's not what that means, correct? So defunding is, um, it's a step towards abolition, but no, defunding does not mean that there will be no police officers. Defunding means that there will be no multi-million dollar budgets that can be used to terrorize communities. I myself do support full abolition of police um, in America and in Connecticut specifically, but defunding is just one of those steps. And so it's not like we just take the budget and the police no longer exist. Um, it just means that towns and cities will not be directing money towards those departments anymore. Can you tell us a little bit about the black prison rates? Well, um, I'm also a supporter of the prison abolition movement. Um, black, black people who are convicted of the same exact crimes as white people get a lot more time in jail for it. They're, convicted at, they're both convicted at higher rates, and then once convicted, um, they serve higher terms as well. And so essentially what, what prisons were born out of is a movement to control black and brown communities, to displace members of the black and brown communities, um, and to cripple us socially, economically. Prisons do not actually reduce crime. Um, there's a reason why when people talk about prison abolition, people are so oh, but they're going to come out of jail and come attack us. If you think yeah. that prisoners are going to come out the same people they went in, then you're admitting that prisons do not work, essentially. Um, and so what they're doing right now is they're, they, they, they serve as sites of displacement that disrupt black and brown households, family units, communities, um, and also just normal progression in the life of a black or brown, especially men, but also women as well, who are pushed into the prison system through schools. Um, I saw something, I saw a graph the other day that showed that Buck, um, Weaver High School has one security guard per 49 students. That is astronomical. I went to a magnet school where there was two security guards total. 
and and we I went to West Hartford school and there was one security guard right and all they do is sit down all day and Weaver has 40 not every 49 students not even 50 every 49 students there's one security guard that is absolutely ridiculous all that's doing is the policing um and that doesn't happen in other schools there are so many communities that are living in complete like bliss and are completely unaware of how black and brown kids are pushed into the prison industrial complex but when you increase policing whether that be through increased security whether that be through some schools that have contracts with actual police departments nationwide um you're criminalizing adolescent behavior and so from that age they're then pushed towards this track for prison they're then being told by the people around them that um you're not going to be anything this this and that and the prison industrial complex is also built on the backs of black and brown people who are not even committing violent crime most of the time. A lot of people are in jail right now. Um, and the public has this idea that, you know, everybody in jail is dangerous. They're scared. They're going to come out and, you know, commit these violent crimes. A lot of people are in jail for things like nonviolent drug offenses. A lot of people are in jail because they violated parole um, off something petty that's not even related to the crime they committed in the first place. And so the prison industrial complex means that prisons are able to have contracts with businesses um, and make money based off of how many prisoners they have. And the easiest way for them to fill that bed is to go into black and brown communities where they rely on police departments to criminalize adolescent behavior. They rely on police departments to terrorize black and brown communities to make sure they have prisoners to make a buck off of. Do you know what percentage of uh, black males are in prison? Um, I actually don't know because those numbers are so they're changing every day. There's not there's actually a lot um, of discrepancies in research about prisons because mm-hmm. obviously it serves the state to not know as much. Um, but I do know that I th- I believe it's like I I looked up the numbers for um, like drug offenses. And they are convicted uh, compared to their white peers mm-hmm. at a rate of 2.5% more. And then once convicted, they um, serve a higher sentence as well. Are there more Blacks in prison than Hispanic people? Yes. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the children that live in poverty with less funding for education. So um, a lot of the time what happens also in schools is a practice of redlining. Um, Mm -hmm. And so Connecticut especially, Connecticut is a deeply segregated state. Um, And what that means is that we also have segregated schools that also are not not receiving the same amount of funding. And this all, this it's crazy how things all tie back together. Because in towns and cities where they're, where they're spending less money on policing, that's freeing up more of the budget to redirect into public schools and education. Children who live in poverty, um, and children, children who live in poverty also live in over-policed areas. They also live in, in areas where schools are not given the same resources. Um, they have higher, they have larger classroom sizes. They have less money spent on recreation in schools, such as art, um, gym, things like that. There's less money spent on the food for kids in the in those schools, and so all of these things tied together because poverty, right? Poverty is criminalized in a lot of ways. 
people who live in right. high poverty areas are also over police. They're also going to schools that are failing. And so they're presented with less options than those of their rural peers or their peers who go to school um, in a richer area. And so a lot of the time people will present like busing, um, busing out of town. I went to a magnet school personally. Um, I didn't grow up in a, in a impoverished town, but I went to a magnet school. And so things like magnet schools are presented as a solution to this. Um, when in fact, the only solution really is to fund public education um, at an equitable rate. Because if you're saying that you have to be bused outside of your school in order to receive an adequate education, then you're admitting that you're not funding them properly. I actually can relate to this. As my son attends school in West Hartford, my niece, she attends school in Hartford, and they're totally on different academic levels. I want to say about three level differences. Insane. Um, yeah, it is. And it's actually really sad. It's very sad. And then people talk about college like it's a great, like it's some great equalizer. But if you if you graduate from high school, right? So if, if this continues and your niece keeps going to the same school system until 12th grade, um, and your son does the same thing. Well, my nephew is <laughs> in your son. Well, they do the same thing and he goes to the same school until 12th grade. They're going to enter college at completely different playing levels and the gap is just going to keep on widening and widening and widening. Um, and so we push kids in in places like Hartford, et cetera, who are, they absolutely deserve to go to whatever college they want to. But it's also kind of a setup to say, you need to do this, you need to do that. And nobody is... Um, giving them the resources they need to succeed in those spaces. Yeah, that is so, 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 so sad. I had a mentor last year through a program that targeted um, chronic absenteeism. And so I worked at Freddie Wish Museum School, which is in the north end of Hartford, um, a severely underfunded school, a school that does, does not have enough resources. They had a security guard um, posted up in every hallway. That was like their norm. And um, there was a lot of issues within the school, but they, those kids were not given the resources they needed. And there was one teacher who I absolutely despised. I reported her to DCF, DCF like five times in one school year. But she treated the kids like criminals. And she, I remember there was an incident with a girl who had a cell phone. And it was a phone that she had just gotten for her birthday or Christmas, something like that. Um, and so we didn't see her with a phone before break, and she came back after break with the phone. And the teacher thought she stole the phone from somebody. He literally accused the girl of stealing her own phone. I watched the little girl in tears. It was awful. Um, but that's really, that's really so common in school. I saw incidents like that a million times. Um, that same teacher, she accused a young man of putting his hands on her. And thankfully, I was there to witness against her um, and say what really happened. But these kids don't even have a safe haven in school. And so it's, it's really sad. And it's really just all going back to the criminalization of black and brown people and youth. It's just a way to keep them down. Exactly. So sad. How do you feel us as parents should talk to our black children about racism? I think it's, it's very difficult um, to even approach the subject in a lot of ways because we want our children to be able to stay innocent. 
um, in ways that the world never really allows them to. And so none of us want to participate in that. But I think it's important to talk to your children about being proud of their blackness about, um, and be honest also when something does happen to them or something that happens to you and they witness it and it's racist, call it what it is and, you know, acknowledge it and talk about where I'm coming from. Talk about the fact that, you know, the civil rights movement did not solve all of America's problems. Um, you know, not to make them fearful, but to just, you know, call it what it is and not gaslight them. Cause I think a lot of the time, if you have a child and they know that somebody's treating them badly and you as a parent don't want to acknowledge it because you don't want to talk about racism, it can really um, harbor, it can cause them to harbor feelings of shame. They can feel like, you know, they're crazy. They think something's happening and everybody's saying it's not happening. And so be honest with your children, um, be candid with them, be caring, always caring, and just encourage that self-love. Um, and also empower them and allow them to express themselves about race and racism and about their experiences in ways that are best serving to them. With all this craziness going around in the world and police mistreating and murdering people of color, how do you think we should approach this topic with our children? Seeing that, you know, police officers are supposed to be here to protect us, protect our children. I think that especially, you know, for black boys and girls, to see people like Breonna Taylor getting murdered by police for sleeping all the time. Um, even Ahmaud Arbery, who was um, and was dogging, was killed by white vigilantes. Things like that are so difficult to approach because you don't want to tell your kids, be scared of all cops. Um, but at the same time, you have to be honest with them about what it is to be a black man or woman in America, or even black boy and girl, because we know that boys and girls are not safe from that violence. Um, I think just talking to them and saying that racism is still real, do that it's not your fault if you're profiled, but as much as you can, just try to you know, keep your head down, go where you're going, stay where you are, keep identification with you, um, know your rights as well, but just, you know, try to make it home. And I think it's difficult because with me, um, when I talk to my nephew about these things, I never want him to feel like, oh, I didn't do this thing and that's why I was brutalized, or I didn't do this thing and that's why they stopped me. Because at in every turn, the honest is on the police officer. Um, we can't teach our kids to outrun racism. You can't outschool racism. You can't, you know, get you can get as many degrees you want. You can get whatever job you want. You can do whatever you want in life, and racism will still follow you. So it becomes difficult because you know, we want to tell our kids do this and do that and be respectful, but at the same time acknowledge that there are so many people who are killed for being black people who did everything right and were still not able to avoid it. Um, so I think it, it, it's a fine line between, you know, giving some cautionary instructions in terms of like hands on the wheel, know your rights, don't make sudden movements, things like that. Um, but also acknowledging that you can do everything right. And I will still believe you if you tell me that somebody did something to you because it happens. That's the scary part that you can send your black young son out into the world and he can do everything right and still be killed for it. And that's the thing is that 
Um, and that's really why I'm such a supporter of police abolition and not reform, because you can't reform white supremacy. If I have to teach you how to not kill me because you're black, then you should not have the power to kill me at all. And you should not have the power to occupy my community. Um, and I think even the idea that we're supposed to be sitting around waiting for some progress where they'll kill less black people next year, it's just so inherently racist and dehumanizing because black lives are not cheap. Like our sons and daughters are not cheap. Our moms and fathers are not cheap. You can tell me right. that, oh, just do all these things right. And if it doesn't work, that's sad. Maybe we'll send them to jail for doing it. Like that, it's just bizarre to me that people think that we can wait for any more progress at this point because you really, I don't want to have kids in this country and have to teach them how to act around police officers because mommy and daddy are black. Like, I don't want to have to do that. Um, but that's what so many black, black parents and, you know, parents of Latinx children as well are facing in this country. And it's dehumanizing and it's terrifying. And it's, it's not a life that I would wish on anyone, really. What can we, the people, do to support people of color? Um, I think mostly amplifying whatever movements there they have going on now. So today, like I said, um, the members of the Harvard community released some demands. Um, for anybody listening who lives in Connecticut, there's a, there's a Twitter that's DefundHPD, um, and that outlet has like tweet. Um, templates that they use to reach out to legislators and um, communicate their demands. The actual list is also posted on that Twitter account. Um, be an advocate everywhere, which means that if you're in a room and there's no black people there and somebody says something racist, you still have to speak up for it. It's not, it's not like, oh, nobody's here to see me do it, so I don't have to do it. Do the work when nobody's looking. Do the work not expecting an acknowledgement. Do the work because Black Lives Matter to you and not because it's trendy right now, not because you're scared that people are going to think you're racist if you don't post this video or you don't sign this petition. Um, read, read, read about the abolition movement, about the movement for Black liberation, about the movement for Black lives. Understand that, um, you know, every community needs something different. And so if you're at a protest, there are some protests where they don't want white people to speak. There are some protests where they welcome white people speaking. There are some protests, or like non-black people in general. There, um, there are all these protests where they really need white allies to be at the front and on the side to protect black and brown people um, from brutalization. But really talk to your talk to members of your community and ask them what they need. Donate, sign. Um, and lead uncomfortable conversations because we're tired of doing it. So it's it's really on other people at this point. And confront anti-blackness in your community. Um, I've had conversations with a lot of Muslim people recently about anti-blackness in the Muslim community because a lot of Muslims are not white, but um, they still have internalized white supremacist ideals. And so confronting that is is extremely key. What are some good charities that people can donate to your own state if you google like whatever thing you're in i know connecticut has a bail fund um that is a non-profit that we can donate to um most cities most major cities have them because a lot of people are getting locked up as a result of protesting um there are also mutual aid funds because you know covid is still going on there are undocumented people who are um, left out of federal and state funding 
as a result of COVID-19. Um, and so there's a, there's a fund, the UndocU fund that people can donate to to support that community. Um, the African-American Policy Forum does work to uplift the names of Black women and girls who are killed by police officers and who are affected by police brutality and um, structural racism in other ways. Their organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I would focus mainly on community mutual aid funds and bail funds, first and foremost. Okay. I'll get some of those from you and I can put them on the link. Okay, perfect. Um, what do you think about the riots and the looting that's going on? So I think, and I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you asked that because I think, um, yeah, because people have different opinions. I'm, I don't want to say I'm here for it, but I understand it. Exactly. I think that's what it is as well as that. Um, first of all, I understand my privilege as somebody who has never had to steal to have basic needs. Um, and I also understand my privilege as somebody who has never watched someone in my town or city get killed by police officers. And so I can't relate to that amount of desperation in terms of needing things and not having funds for them. I also can't relate to that amount of rage of watching. I mean, I'm traumatized by deaths in other places, but I can't imagine watching that happen in my own community, having to explain that to my you know, my children in real time um, and understanding that these are the same cops that are terrorizing those communities. So in Minneapolis, the cop who murdered George Floyd, he had dozens of complaints against him. He had been brutalizing people in that community um, over time. And it's not as if, you know, this one thing happened and everybody just, you know, rises up and starts looting and rioting. Riots are cries of the oppressed. That's what Martin Luther King Jr. said. Um, And it's really, it's a language that we're speaking because y'all have not been hearing us. There's been so many peaceful demands. And even now there are peaceful protests that police officers are going to and creating chaos by throwing tear gas and by brutalizing protesters. Um, And so firstly, I'm critical to even call anything a riot because we don't know what happened as as a result of police escalation and the media tells one story. Um, but also the armed riots, I don't consider riots to be violent. It's anti-racist work, um, it's disruption, and it's making voices that are being ignored heard because racism is violence. Structural racism is violence. I don't I don't care for Target, which is a multi-billion dollar corporation that has lots of insurance, um, that operates in a community where it exploits labor of black and brown people but does not invest in those communities. I don't care if they get looted, to be honest. Like, a man died, and people are talking about windows and what, like, curtains at Target. Like, we have to also think about what we value over Black lives. I think it's extremely important because looting, um, while it might not be legal, legal does not equal moral, and also it's not physically harming anyone the way that police officers are every single day. And so I think that, you know, we really have to push back against what we consider to be violence um, and what we value over Black lives. I feel the same way. Um, Can you explain a little bit about Black Lives Matter to the people that say all lives matter? I, okay, so 
it's really I think that um one thing that all of us who support Black Lives Matter need to accept as well is that some people are just they're committed to misunderstanding us. Um and by that I mean we nobody ever said all lives don't matter. But more importantly, not even just we didn't say that, the United States government has never ever devalued white lives. In every in every sphere of life, white people on the color of their skin, you know, some of them face issues from classism or sexism or other isms, but based on the color of their skin, there's no part of life that does not cater to the white experience. Um, and so when we talk about black lives, we say black lives matter because people treat us as if they don't. And people act like black life is cheap and black blood is cheap. And it's something that is completely left over going all the way back to slavery, where a black life was all you were were property. Um, and now we're, you know, we're painted as criminals or, you know, black women are extremist, black women and men are extremely sexualized or, you know, we're where somebody where 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 a number in a prison book, where somebody to get arrested, where somebody to get killed by the police, um, and so when we say Black Lives Matter, we affirm not only do we matter after we're killed by cops, but we matter every day. We matter in our schools that are getting underfunded. We matter in the healthcare system that does not treat us the same way. We matter um, in the sports leagues where we're asked to perform but not speak our minds. We matter in all aspects of life. Um, I think a lot of the time people only confront you with police brutality, but Black life, Black Lives Matter is really a movement for Black liberation in every way. Thank you. That was very beautifully said. And I just want to emphasize that all lives don't matter till Black Lives Matter. And uh, we as people need to understand that. Do you have like anything else any other topic that you would like to like cover? Um, so I wanted to talk for a second about, I don't know if you've seen like the, the images of protesters kneeling with police officers. Um, oh, yes. Things like right. that. Yep. So I, first of all, this is cop propaganda 101. Um, police officers do not care about your community. They do not care about your demands. They do not care about black lives that are getting stolen every single day. Um, and really, I think that as Black people, we have this this urge in us to accept people. They, we're begging people to love us, essentially. Um, we want cops to kneel with us because we don't want to be angry. But we have to hold on to that anger because we owe it to our communities and we owe it to ourselves. Um, a cop who kneels with you and then half an hour later will tear gas you and your comrades is not an ally. And we need to also stop offering allyship without, um, without accountability. And so research what your what the police department in your town or city is doing. Think about the people who you're disrespecting by kneeling with the oppressors. Um, and just please don't do it. Just stop giving them a photo op to make themselves look good. It's, it's really embarrassing. Yeah, because hundreds were arrested for peacefully protesting. I don't know about in the Hartford area. Do you, did anybody there get arrested was, there in the Hartford area? There were arrests made in Waterbury, um, I believe it was last weekend, for a peaceful protest where cops showed up um, and started detaining people off of the sidewalk. It was, it was a huge mess. 
um, I had a couple friends out there who said like it was it was very scary as well. So yeah, there had been arrests in Connecticut. I know there was also two young girls who got arrested in Bridgeport um, a couple weeks ago. So it's it's been happening. How long do you think these protests will continue? Yeah, so I've I've seen plans for as far out as Juneteenth, which would be next Friday. Um, but I hope that they keep going after that. I think also with all the budget talk going on, that will also add to the um, to the protest. But what I also like to see is that, especially in the wake of COVID, um, people are diversifying how they protest and how they disrupt. Um, and so today, like I said, we had a Twitter storm and we were tagging a bunch of um, the, the, we were tagging all of the Hartford City Council men and women. Um, we we're tagging Mayor Bronin um to to show out our demands and so i've seen a lot of people diversifying how they organize and i think that um as diverse as their movement is that adds to longevity of it and so it might not always be physical protests but like there are op-eds being written there are um social media storms happening there's a lot of different ways that people are resisting so i love to see it I do have one more question before I let you go. Um, can you speak about the derailing of black on black crime? Black on black crime is not a valid um con- like valid counter argument to Black Lives Matter because first of all, Black Lives Matter addresses black on black crime by talking about gun violence, by talking about um the education system and that leads to poverty and that lead to a cycle of violence and crime. Um, People want to believe that Black people are inherently violent, and so they don't consider any of the factors that lead to violent crime in the Black community, um, which is inherently problematic, of course. But also, crime is is about proximity to each other. And so, because we we live in a deeply segregated country, Black people live next to other Black people. And so, usually communities harm within themselves white people kill more white people black people kill more black people asian people kill more asian people because that's who we're around and those are the communities that we're members of so those are the communities that we cause harm within um and also when we affirm black lives matter in terms of police not held accountable for murdering black people because they're black people Black people who murder other Black people are held accountable by the justice system um, and also by the community. And so it's it's complete derailing of the conversation. Um, it's really a stupid argument. The term Black on Black crime is inherently racist because all crime is about is proximity and circumstance. Black people are not killing other Black people because they're Black. That doesn't make any sense. Anything else you would like to say before we end this wonderful episode? just you know if anybody listening make sure that you reach out to the organizers in your town or your city um also remember that you can organize as well so if you have any ideas you know try to make something happen um take care of yourself self-care is so so important during these times especially um black people please 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 take a pause um, allow yourself to process everything that's going on allow yourself to have time off the of social media i had to take a couple of days off um, this weekend because I was it was just so intense for me seeing so much collective grief at the same time um, and it was adversely affecting my anxiety and so take time for yourself take care of yourself 
find refuge in our community. Um, I understand that we all want to see this fight won, but burnout is real. So, you know, pay attention to what your body and your mind need and don't be afraid to say no as well. Yeah, I think self-care at this time is very important. I was actually having anxiety for the past two days and I just kept um, looking at my black children and I'm like, I don't know how to talk to you guys about this. Like, I don't even want to talk to you guys about this. I don't even want to have this conversation with you guys. But, um, and then I'm, you're, you also get scared. Like, like I have to protect them. Who's going to protect my children? Definitely. If I don't protect them. It's terrifying. So. I think that, you know, we never have time to process our trauma because our trauma is always a movement. You know, something happens to us and then we have to go out and fight for our own lives, um, which is, it's sad. And it's it's adversely affecting all generations of Black people. And so I really think it's, it's just key for all of us who are consuming this day in and day out to take a pause um, and to do what we can for ourselves and our families. Would you encourage the Black community to go vote this time around? Voting is a right, and I I celebrate anyone um, exercising their rights, especially the rights our ancestors fought for so so valiantly. My problem with electoral politics is that we live in a blue state, and our police department is still overfunded. George Floyd was murdered in a town that has a Democratic mayor. Um, the Democratic Town Council that are still failing that community. And so a lot of the time people will like to pretend like um, like like Republicans are the only racist, right? And so if you vote blue, then we'll be fine. Joe Biden, who is a Democratic right. candidate for president, is one of the archetypes of the prison industrial complex. He helped create the crisis in prisons that the Black community is suffering from today. Um, and so I don't trust politicians, blue or Republican. I encourage everyone to vote and more importantly, to not vote if people need to be held accountable and taken out of office. And so vote against them, run your own um, nominee, figure out what you can do to organize and get people out of office. And voting is a great accountability tool, especially with local elections, um, because you can tell people if you do not listen to us now, we will vote you out next year. But I don't like voting is just one piece of it um voting locally definitely matters a lot more than voting nationally because those are the politics that are you know happening to you in real time and those are politics where you'll be able to see the most change um through community organizing but i definitely don't shame people into voting and i don't pretend like democrats are the answers to our problems because they're not Um, with that being said, I'm going to close out this episode. Thank you again, Hadi Ali, for coming on Cackling Hens. We really appreciate you. I thought it was very important to record this episode because Black lives do matter. And um, anyone that wants to follow me um, that tuned in, you guys can follow me on Instagram. Uh, it's Cackling underscore Hens. Again, Cackling underscore Hens. Um, and I'll catch you guys on the flip side. Can't wait to see you next episode. XOX.